You're going to love this. Just love it. But will I love it? That's the question. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. Definitely not. I'm so Definitely not right. I fall off my chair. And uh. I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the yep. middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the here I am, Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, feeling particularly cynical today. From bradblog.com, this is your Bradcast live on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on your smart devices, on the Progressive Voices channel, on TuneIn, on the Netroots radio, on the Liberal Justice radio, yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. Glad you could join us here live this afternoon. Like I said, I am feeling particularly cynical today. And that's not a good thing. So you you are being warned. Skepticism, that's good. It's always good to be skeptical. Not so good to be cynical. And yet, that's where I find myself today. And I don't know if it's because uh, the, the government has just completely ground to a halt yeah, they're on vacation. That's usually a good thing. But, I mean, nothing, you know, I, I've been talking to uh, to friends and sources and other folks over the past couple of weeks about, you know, will anything happen on this? Will anything happen on that? Do we imagine something can happen? Every single one of them say, no, 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 nothing is going to happen. Nothing can happen. We now have a government that is so unbelievably broken that frankly, I don't even know where we go from here. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm cynical. Uh, the other reason is I haven't had a vacation for uh, months and months and actually years and years. And uh, I'm sort of thinking about getting out of Dodge. We're going to be off the next couple of weeks and getting out of Dodge and heading into the mountains. And, and maybe that will help. I don't know. In any case, coming up uh, momentarily, we're going to be joined by Dan Frumpkin, formerly of the Washington Post, formerly of the Huffington Post. Uh, to talk about the sale of the Washington Post and why anyone should care. See, I told you I was cynical. Little warning. Um, also, a little bit later in uh, the broadcast here, we're going to be talking about the United States of Fear and Redaction. Uh, a couple of uh, interesting stories have come together uh, that have just underscored once again uh, not just the surveillance state that we've been talking about for so many uh, weeks and months now on this show, but the state of secrecy, the secrecy state, the massive secrecy state that we now have in this country, and how a couple of the stories uh, that are in the news today uh, have underscored that. So we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. Of course, we're going to be joined by Desi Doyen, as always, with the Green News Report. 
ticking off uh, some uh, corporate interests as usual. That's why we get to do it on KPFK. <laughs> Uh, any case, uh, today, some headlines. Reuters. Yemen has foiled a plot by al-Qaeda to seize two major oil and gas export terminals and a provincial capital in the east of the country, the government said the government, the Yemen government, said on Wednesday, as Western embassies remained in lockdown. The announcement by Yemen of the thwarted plot comes after warnings of potential attacks by militants prompted Washington to shut down diplomatic missions across the Middle East and Africa last week and to issue a global travel warning. That's from Reuters this morning. From AP this morning, in a rare diplomatic snub, President Barack Obama is canceling plans to meet with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow next month. The decision reflects both U.S. anger over Russia's harboring of national security agent, uh, agency leaker Edward Snowden and growing, growing frustration within the Obama administration over what it sees as Moscow's stubbornness on other key issues, including missile defense and human rights. I heard about both of those uh, stories this morning. As soon as I woke and I rolled over and I grabbed my iPhone and there was two breaking headlines uh, from AP and from Reuters. And I clicked on them and I was brought to Talking Points Memo, the online uh, uh, news uh, service and blog. And I read about those stories, all of which make me wonder, do we even need a Washington Post at all anymore? See, I told you I was cynical today. Uh, not a good thing. Uh, you've been warned, Dan Frumkin. Dan Frumkin worked at the Washington Post for more than a decade, where he wrote the White House Watch blog for six years until June of 2009, when apparently the Washington Post decided the White House no longer needed watching. He went on to become senior Washington correspondent and Washington bureau chief for the Huffington Post from 2009 to 2012. And all the while, he also served as deputy editor of NeimanWatchdog.org for the Neiman Foundation for Journalism uh, at Harvard. Full disclosure, I contributed to uh, Neiman Watchdog once or twice at Dan's invitation, as I recall. Dan Frumkin is now leading a new launching soon project called uh, for the Center, the Center for Accountability Journalism, which you can find more about at fearlessmedia.org. Dan Frumkin, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Well, thank you. It's uh, really delightful to be here, and it's great to have you here, my friend. Uh, you were the first person I thought about, believe it or not, when when I heard about the sale of uh, Washington uh, Post this week, the surprise sale of Washington Post because of your history there, among other reasons, and frankly because of your tweets uh, that I was following that day uh, when you wrote, "My brain just exploded." <laughs> Wash. Yeah. Washington Post sold to Jeff Bezos, uh, the uh, Amazon.com founder uh, who purchased the Washington Post in a surprise purchase uh, this week for $250 million. Uh, Dan, Matt Iglesias wrote, or I should say tweeted this week, uh, quote, journalists turn out to be really interested in commissioning, writing and reading stories about the journalism industry. And 
I I think this week has proven that true, as we've seen so many stories, so many, uh, so much. I want to say navel gazing by folks in the uh, in the industry about the Washington Post. It's gotten tons of ink. Uh, ink in quotes, if you will. Uh, Other than the fact that it was a surprise out of nowhere, I want to ask you this question, and I've warned listeners already that I'm feeling really cynical today, but but why should we, the public, if not necessarily the journalism industry, why should we actually care that Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, Dan Frumkin? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, one is the purely uh, geographical reason. If you live in the Washington area, you, you, you should care what happens to the dominant newspaper in your area. Uh, every major metro area needs to have a, a newspaper. It needs to have as good a newspaper as possible. And uh, so, so, you know, if the Washington Post went away, it would be a, a tragic loss to the Washington area, just like any paper leaving its area would be a tragic loss to its area. Secondly... Uh, okay, got, so it's a it's it's a local story then, right? Local paper it's a, it's, is saved. It's a, it's a big local story. Okay, That's absolutely the case. Secondly, you've got the fact that the Washington Post, even though it hasn't lived up to it lately, uh, has an incredible brand and reputation that uh, we ought to aspire. You know, it, it ought to be aspiring to, and we ought to hope it reaches again. And that brand, of course, is is Watergate. It's it's basically keeping a you know keeping a skeptical. Uh, watchful eye on Washington uh, and not letting people get away with lying, cheating, and stealing uh, and using the powers of the government against the people. So uh, although I I would say that the Post has not done the greatest job of that over the last dozen or so years, Uh uh, it still does some. It's It's had some excellent work. Um, the the fact that everybody can name the three or four same projects is a little bit alarming, but <laughs> but, uh, but it's done some terrific work. It still has the potential to do terrific work, and more importantly, it needs to do more terrific work in the future. Then the third issue is that Bezos is a fascinating guy to be buying this newspaper, because frankly, a lot of us who had uh, given up on anybody being able to make a go of this uh, financially are now thinking, well, if anybody can do it, maybe Bezos can. Now, this may be just, you know, really giddy, optimistic thinking on our part. Mm-hmm. Um, and he may be, you know, more of an absentee landlord. He may, in fact, do something really stupid that actually destroys the franchise faster than the Grams ever would have. But the possibility exists that he will actually use the incredible smarts and the incredible uh, army of developers that, that, that you know, has built Amazon into the behemoth that it is and find a way to actually monetized journalism again. Yeah, and the, the fact that you have to point out, Dan, when you say that it hasn't lived up to it lately and then we have to go back to Watergate to, to sort of cite... Uh, yeah, uh, there's a few others, like me, like Dana Priest's uh-huh. uh, expose on Walter Reed, like uh, Dana Priest and, and, and uh, Bill Arkin's uh, expose on, on the incredible uh, extent of what they call top-secret America. Mm-hmm. Um, Walter Pincus's coverage during the war, you know, in the run-up to the war... Uh, in Iraq, uh, th- there have been some uh, some terrific things since then, but uh, but but by and large, it's become you know what uh, my brother calls a semi-official uh, newspaper of the American government, rather right. than 
the the uh, the watchdog. Well, right, and 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 this is one of my concerns. You know, a, a lot of uh, journalists, including myself, over the years, have been you know wringing our hands about the demise of newspapers and everything else. But uh, because you know, thanks to the internet, and you know, folks like myself, and and certainly you, you are at the Huffington Post, and you know how how many of those folks are over there are working for free. So you know, we look at this and say, well, this is not sustainable. It's going to kill uh, the industry if people are willing to work for free. Uh, but how much of the demise of uh, papers like the Washington Post uh, is really their own fault, not the Internet's fault? You know, I, I was following along with you, Dan, uh, throughout the years, uh, the lead up to the Iraq war and the years after when the uh, when not just the Washington Post, but virtually everyone in the media seemed to become a lapdog for the administration. And people, I think, just started turning away. So I'm wondering how much of this is really due to the Internet and how much of this is due to the failure of journalism itself. I mean, if you look now, for example, sadly, we have to look overseas at The Guardian and the work that Glenn Greenwald and and Spencer Ackerman and, and a lot of the other folks are doing there concerning the Edward Snowden uh, uh, leaks and so forth. I'm I'm sure their readership is going through the roof right now over the past few months. How much of this is due to uh, the failure of the newspapers is due to the Internet? And how much is due to the failure of journalism itself, as you see it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Guardian's incredible success has been really a, uh, a lesson uh, and a humiliation for for the major news organizations in the, in the country. I, I completely agree. Um, let me just clarify one thing, which is that the people at Huffington Post who actually are told what to do and who are given assignments right. and, and, who are, and who write articles, uh, news articles and stuff, they actually do get paid. Right. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> you know, obviously, uh, plenty of people write for it for free, but it has yes. that. Um, the, uh, I, I think you're, you're right. I think there's two ways in which journalism failed itself. Uh, and I'm actually writing an essay about that right now, which I will publish for free somewhere. <laughs> right. You're, you're welcome to publish it for free at bradblog.com, by the way, Dan, anytime. It, it'll, it'll, it'll show up somewhere. Um, and uh, there, there's two failures, not, neither of which can be underestimated. Um, one is actually a failure to embrace the technology. And uh, I was a witness to that because my first six years at the Washington Post, I was actually... Uh, working at the website as an editor, trying to actually develop the news product, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we just we were very slow. Uh, we, the whole industry, was very slow. We were plagued by uh, not insufficient number of developers and insufficient quality of developers and insufficient vision, and hobbled by all these legacy operations and all by these old, old-fashioned requirements. And uh, so we we never really we've always been. Distant fault, you know, distant uh, laggards in terms of embracing technology, and it's been devastating because there's so much that can be done. There's so many ways to communicate now that are so exhilarating, and journalism should have been the forefront of that instead of being a, a trailing indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's actually one of the reasons why I think this thing with Bezos is potentially very exciting. The second factor, you know, I don't know what Bezos is, is going to do with this, but but I completely agree that basically. Journalism has, during this period when it needed to step up and needed to actually be more aggressive about and be more assertive about its role as the watchdog, as the voice of the public, as the 
uh, as the guardian of, of, of the little guy, has in fact gotten more and more sort of corporate and averse to conflict and uh, chooses to sort of indulge in he said, she said journalism and false equivalency rather than sticking up for, for values. Um, and I'm not talking about partisan values. I'm mm-hmm. talking about just sort of common core human journalistic values, mm-hmm. you know, for fair play and uh, human rights and, you know, against war and, 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 and for economic fairness and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, I think that basically a lot of the, the stuff that you read in your, main, in your mainstream uh, news organizations is, is kind of dull and, uh, and, and feels disingenuous to a lot of people. Yeah, and not in the survey. I mean, I, I think that has not been more apparent in many years than what we've seen in light of uh, Edward Snowden and those leaks and seeing the media actually turn on not just Edward Snowden for leaking, but on Glenn Greenwald for right. reporting it uh, at The Guardian. This has been amazing to me, and this hasn't been only from you know government interests who, who we would uh, sort of expect to do this, but actually people in the media, people, journalists in the media, guys like uh, 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 Tubin, Jeffrey Tubin over nothing, at CNN. It's It's been amazing ever, to watch. Nothing has ever so clearly highlighted the uh, fundamental alliance between the elite media and the ruling elite as this story. It, it really Absolutely has. Absolutely shocking. Uh, just and deeply troubling. Indeed. Now, uh, Bezos writes. Jeff Bezos writes in his letter to the uh, to the employees, uh, the few that are still left, I guess, at the Washington Post. He writes that the values of the Post do not need changing. The paper's duties. Paper's duty will remain to its readers and not to the private interests of its owners, uh, which may have put some people uh, at ease. Me, when I read that, I thought, well, you know what? The values of the Post actually do need changing. Uh, if you, particularly if you take a look at the uh, at the editorial section of the Washington Post now, really for the last decade, they have taken not just a a hard right turn, but a bizarre right-wing turn, as far as I can tell. A, a hawkish sort of pro-torture, solve-everything yeah. weapons turn, yes. It's very bizarre. Uh, although, of course, there also are some tremendously talented people writing on the op-ed page. I, mm-hmm. I, I always feel bad when I tar all of them, when you also have people like E.J. Dion and Harold Meyerson and, uh, you know, and, and, and Gene Robinson. Mm-hmm. Spectacular. So, uh, so it's not, it, it's not, they're not all, all, all that way. But yes, by and large, uh, you're right. I, I think what, what Bezos meant there was the espoused value, the, you know, those values that you hear people <laughs> talk about, um, th- that the Washington Post stands for, the values that you would hear Catherine Weymouth and Don Graham and, and, and what have you say are the values of the Post. I think he shares those. I think it was a very important statement on his part that he was not planning on using the Post you know, to pursue his own financial or political goals, um, you know the the whole separation between the the ownership publishing side and the editorial the, the news side. Uh-huh. There's the great wall that we form between is a hugely important thing for us journalists, and not one that people outside the business always appreciate. Uh, but it's the only, you know, get, not guarantee, but it's the only sort of protection that, that the public has against being manipulated by the people who own the presses. And uh, and so I think what he was saying was, I'm, I get that. 
And so I admire that. I'm glad you said that. Well, which brings me to another point, and and I warned you uh, that I was feeling cynical today. So again, my apologies in advance for that. Uh, But, um, you know, the firewall between the ownership and the editorial side. Uh, Charlie Savage, who is, uh, I think, now at uh, New York Times, uh, formerly Boston Globe, I think, which sold for about 10 cents last year. Um, Oh, no, no, no. It sold for uh, uh, 70 million? Uh, Yeah, I think it was uh, (laughs) 70 million. And it it was purchased, as I recall, in 19... For one billion, yeah. So a little bit more than 10 cents. Charlie left. See what happened. And Charlie left. That's right. (laughs) Who's been doing great uh, great work, by the way, uh, there and at the New York Times. Uh, He tweeted, again, uh, that the Washington Post sale to Bezos is probably a good thing, but the CIA is paying Amazon $600 million for services in the cloud more than two times what he actually paid for the Washington Post. In addition uh, to the fact that he's getting $600 million now from the CIA, he has all sorts of business interests, or at least Amazon does, uh, all sorts of business interests that are coming up before Congress, uh, you know, minimum wage issues, internet, internet tax issues. Uh, I watch the newsroom on HBO like everyone else, uh, Dan Frumkin. <laughs> I've seen uh, Jane Fonda uh, fighting for her uh, fictitious cable news networks and their business interests over the interests of reporting the news. Do you have concerns? I mean, and, and there are a lot of them. I've just listed a couple. Do you have concerns that the business interests of uh, Jeff Bezos will affect his uh, ownership, his his work at the paper? Um, my first answer is no. I don't have concerns because... I think that if he told anybody in the post to do something that they felt was they were asked to be asked to do because of his business interests, they would there would be a mass resignation and the paper, as we know it, would cease to exist. So, so I I, I do feel confident that that that's that's not going to happen. That said, I also answer your question yes mm-hmm. because the reality is that there's nothing that explains the behavior of mid-level and senior editors across the industry uh, better than the fact that they're doing what they think their bosses want them mm-hmm. to do. Self-censorship. The, the self-censorship. There's, you know, just, just like when my contract was terminated at the Washington Post, some people were saying, well, somebody told the Washington Post to do that. <laughs> no, you don't tell the Washington Post what to do. The Washington Post does it to itself. <laughs> well, yeah, and and when you have, a, in, in this environment right now, when you have something like a $600 million deal that the CIA has with Jeff Bezos, with the guy that owns the Washington, Washington Post, this seems to me to be a concern. I mean, I, I would have expected, frankly, uh, these mass walk-offs you're talking about to have already occurred at the Wall Street Journal, given the right rightward turn that it that paper has taken over the last several years since it's, since it was purchased by Rupert Murdoch. So, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering what and now uh, the Koch brothers are talking about buying the L.A. Times out the here. The L.A. Times staff has been clear that uh, most of them would leave if that happened. So I think there's still there's still a backbone there, Brad. There's still some integrity in the business. I, 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 I and and if you know the people who work for these newspapers, you know, that's true. Uh, it's still a bunch of terrific people who really want to be public-spirited. That said, there are some weird incentive structures. There are some weird, weird examples of people doing what they think they're supposed to do, even though they know it doesn't make any sense. I am much more concerned, however, 
about the day-in, day-out closeness between you know, our elite media and their elite sources than I am about a contract, which I don't think anybody's going to pull shenanigans on. Um, you know, if you look at the, what happened over the weekend on Friday, the New York Times withheld information mm-hmm. on the request of the American government right. about who was involved in this discussion that was overheard that, that set off these, uh, these terror alerts. Mm-hmm. Well, McClatchy reported on Sunday because, A, they heard it in Yemen where apparently everybody knew it. Right. Uh, and B, uh, you know, they don't, they don't give in to, to just random government request to, to, uh, to, to withhold information. Uh, and, and then, you know, and then again, so you have all these newspapers are sort of taking what they're being told very, very credulously, very, very seriously. And McClatchy, actually, which is sort of my big, my huge fan of, especially these days, yep. uh, it, it, you know, actually wrote a story this morning about how this terror alert seemed completely nuts to people who actually know what's going on. So, uh, so I'm, and I don't think it's a reflection of different ownerships. I think I think it's a reflection of a unique history of of, of, res, of sort of rebellion in the McClatchy, formerly Knight Ritter Washington Bureau, and unfortunately of the fact that so many of their colleagues are part of the sort of cabal, friendship, cocktail party circuit, unofficial, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours culture in this town. Uh, and I'm glad you uh, brought up uh, people thinking the reaction is sort of nuts uh, and that it was, once again, McClatchy who reported it. And we should give credit, uh, they were uh, previously Knight Ritter, and in the lead-up to the Iraq War, uh, Knight Ritter was really one of the only mainstream outlets that was questioning the uh, the Bush administration's... Uh, re- right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, I, think, I think Knight yeah. Ritter launched a meme this morning, too, by the way. I mean, uh, McClatchy, one of the quotes that was in their headline actually was, it's crazy pants. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I didn't read the article. Uh, uh, tell me what they uh, said in general, because uh, I've, I've got some thoughts on that that I posted at bradblog.com in general yeah. about these warnings, and I'm, I'm going to opine a bit about that after the break. So I'm curious what they had to say about the crazy pants warnings. Uh, the headline is "Broad U.S. Terror Alert Mystifies Experts." It's crazy pants. One oh, says, <laughs> and basically, it says that there's there's this sort of bizarre alert status, and that that doesn't seem, you know, doesn't doesn't seem sort of explicable. And they talk to people who would ordinarily be able to explain it, and and they said, "It's it, we can't." <laughs> uh, you know, it was funny because I saw somebody uh, tweet the other day. That uh, oh uh, is isn't it nice to have a government who no longer ties their terror alerts to uh, you know to their political fortunes and the first thing that I thought of was uh, really uh, yeah, Edwards well, I mean, Edwards there a, Snowden there was, a, there was a concern that this was absolutely uh, exaggerated to sort of distract from the NSA scandal. In fact, the first New York Times story had in, in a, an otherwise long and credulous piece, just sort of quoting what their sources told them, had this one inexplicable paragraph that said, some of experts and congressional officials uh, are concerned that this is basically just a big ruse to distract from the NSA scandal. And then they went back to credulousness. Mm-hmm. And, there was, and, and there's been no skepticism about that from anybody else uh, until this McClatchy story this morning. 
Yeah, see, and so is it any any wonder, as I said at the top of the show, how skepticism, which is healthy, turns to cynicism, which yeah. is not. And, and of course, that is where I find myself. Uh, just this week, I don't know, I, I got a vacation next week. Maybe I'll feel better. But I'm feeling very cynical about so much uh, that I hear. Help me, uh, Dan Frumkin, in the last minute or two we have here, help me feel less cynical. Tell me about uh, fearlessmedia.org, the Center for Accountability Journalism, which you are uh, now leading up, which is a soon to launch at fearlessmedia.org. Yeah, well, there is reason for optimism. I mean, I, I think that the, 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 the business industry is sort of in a moment of soul-searching right now where things could go either way. I think the technology is such that you can get messages out in a way that are uh, were unimaginable before, both in terms of publishing technology and social media. And so I'm going to be a relentless voice for journalism that does what we want it to do. Uh, I'm going to be uh, calling attention to great examples of that from wherever they are. I'm going to be sort of establishing best practices for how you cover these issues, which often become the, the subject of sort of mealy-mouthed, uh, he-said-she-said journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's going to be terrific. Uh, so, so bookmark fearlessmedia.org, uh, and uh, as soon as I get out of the fundraising and launch phase, uh, I will be... Uh, it'll be up uh, in September or October. I will be looking forward to that very much. And, uh, Dan, throughout the years, uh, and I'm glad to hear that, that, by the way, that you're still optimistic, uh, that you think that we could turn the right way, that you see this Washington Post deal as a good thing, uh, and, and frankly, that you're still fighting because, uh, you know, following your work over all of these years at uh, at the White House Watch and then at Beyond, at Huffington Post, and now on Twitter. And, by the way, I recommend people follow Dan uh, at Frumkin is his uh, is his Twitter address. He's a great follow there. Uh, you have called it like you see it. You have been uh, fearless indeed in calling out uh, other folks in the media uh, for their failures throughout all of these years, not just folks uh, in politics, but folks in the media as well. So uh, keep up the good media watchdogging, my friend. And as I can help at fearlessmedia.org, I hope you will let me know. I will, absolutely, and, and you have a good vacation. I think. Come back recharged and, and only you. slightly less cynical, because cynicism is not irrational. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I need that very much, Dan. I really do. Great talking to you. Dan Frumkin, formerly of the Washington Post, formerly of the Huffington Post, soon to be of fearlessmedia.org. Thanks, Dan. Yesterday's papers Who wants yesterday's gun Who wants yesterday's papers Nobody in the world Not me. All right, we're going to take a quick break here and come back with much more of the broadcast, including Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, which, by the way, is never cynical at all. So stay tuned for that and the United States of Fear and Redaction. All of that is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned.
More Than Honey tackles the vexing issue of why bees are facing worldwide extinction. Oscar-nominated director Marcus Imhoff travels the world utilizing exquisite macro photography of bees in flight and in the hive to reveal a fascinating, complex world in crisis. A strangely moving film which raises cosmic questions of species survival, More Than Honey opens on Friday, August 9th at Lemley's Music Hall 3, 9036 Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. KPFK Film Club members are invited to call the front desk during business hours at 818-985-2711, dial zero for operator for a pair of tickets good Monday through Thursday. And if you aren't already a film club member, please consider joining at kpfk.org. Have you been meaning to volunteer at KPFK? Do it today. Visit kpfk.org and click on volunteer. Don't talk about the weather. It's a military secret. Just keep your wits together. That's the safest way to keep it. These are critical times. Be careful of espionage. Uh-huh. In such critical times, you've got to watch out for sabotage. Oh, you do. You need to be afraid. You need to be afraid of absolutely everything. And both the government and the uh, mainstream corporate media will make sure you stay afraid of everything. That's the way they like it. Welcome back. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to KPFK live broadcasting out of Los Angeles. Brad of bradblog.com. Going to uh, talk more about some of those military secrets in a moment. But uh, first, I just wanted to uh, note, I'm going to point you over to bradblog.com for this. Uh, James Sensenbrenner, who over the years, particularly during the Bush years, I have been highly critical of, most famously back in uh, 2005, when as chair of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, uh, the Wisconsin Republican shut down the microphones and lights in the middle of an oversight hearing. We've still got the video of that over at Bradblog. Um, it was an oversight hearing on the Patriot Act, which uh, Sensor Brenner was is said to have been one of the key authors of. Uh, and he just shut down the hearing when he didn't like the uh, the witnesses that uh, the Democrats had had brought forward at this hearing. Uh, I had been highly critical of him then. I was highly critical of him in 2011 when he did damn near the same thing in uh, at a town hall meeting after protesters expressed outrage over the uh, Republicans' radical anti-union law that had been recently adopted up in Wisconsin. But this is not to criticize Congressman Sensenbrenner. This is actually to give him a bit of kudos. He has been an outspoken supporter for the Voting Rights Act, which saw its 48th anniversary yesterday and saw its heart violently cut out by the United States Supreme Court about one month ago uh, in the Voting Rights Act when they killed Section 4, the list of jurisdictions that are uh, required to get preclearance for new voting laws uh, due to their long history of racial discrimination. Uh, this, uh, uh, Representative Sensenbrenner has been very outspoken about the need to fix what the uh, U.S. Supreme Court broke. He, in fact, as uh, head of the uh, House uh, chair of the House Judiciary Committee back in 2006, 
When the Voting Rights Act came up for reauthorization, he was the one who who oversaw many of the meetings, I'm sorry, the hearings about the Voting Rights Act. He helped compile some 15,000 pages of, uh, of documentation on why the Voting, right, uh, Voting Rights Act was still necessary as it was written. Um, and it was approved at the time 390 to 33 in the U.S. House. It was approved 98 to nothing in the U.S. Senate. The reauthorization for 25 years was then signed by George W. Bush for 25 years. Uh, and it was James Sensenbrenner who was overseeing the uh, the hearings on that and the need for the continuation of the Voting Rights Act. And he at the time uh, said that they heard testimony of invidious discrimination as they compiled, quote, one of the most extensive considerations of any piece of legislation that the U.S. Congress has dealt with in the 27 and a half years that I have served. And uh, he, he did a uh, op-ed in the... Um, In the USA Today this week, late last week, uh, in which he repeated that a lot of invidious discrimination was shown, and he once again reasserted his unassailable uh, support for the Voting Rights Act. So good for James Sensenbrenner for doing something right. Actually invited him to appear on the show today. He was unable to to join me, but um, look, if there's anything that folks in this country should be able to come together on, it's voting. Uh, No matter how different uh, he and I may be politically, uh, he's right on this one, and I'm happy to to support him in that and glad he's on the right side of history when it comes to the Voting Rights Act. What the hell we're going to do about it and how we're going to fix it, that's another matter, uh, I'm sorry to say, probably for another day. Uh, You can read my story at bradblog.com on James Sensenbrenner. It is entitled, Thank You, Mr. Sensenbrenner. Uh, And it was also uh, republished at Salon. Uh, Also, while you're at bradblog.com, check out uh, Congresswoman Julia Brownlee's excuse for why she voted against the Amash Conyers Amendment last week. That amendment uh, would have stopped funding for the NSA to massively surveil U.S. citizens. Uh, Her excuse, oh, she didn't have time to properly consider the one-paragraph amendment. Uh, Our own legal analyst, Ernie Canning, Ernest Canning, uh, has a word or two to say for uh, Congresswoman Julia Browning, I'm sorry, Brownlee, the uh, Democrat from uh, from California's 26th district. So check out that report. And I just wanted to mention that because we are on the air, of course, in the 26th district. And uh, Congresswoman Brownlee, if you'd like to come on and respond anytime uh, to that and to your claims of protecting civil uh, liberties and yet voting against Amash Conyers, I'd love to hear it. Okay, I was watching last night uh, a segment on the Rachel Maddow show with Desi Doyen, our producer here, and she'll be joining us uh, momentarily, concerning those recent warnings that you heard Dan Frumkin uh, describe as crazy pants uh, out there in, uh, in, in the Middle East and in northern Africa where people are trying to figure out what's going on and uh, what these alerts are about and why they're evacuating 
uh, embassies and consulates and the U.S. government is uh, is not being clear about what they know and what's going on and what their concerns are, and yet they're telling the New York Times not to report what the New York Times has been able to learn. And uh, Rachel Maddow sort of framed it uh, within the context this week of the 12th anniversary of the infamous August 6, 2001 presidential daily briefing memo warning, quote, bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. And that was, in fact, uh, the memo that George W. Bush apparently ignored just one month before 9-11. Uh, Maddow was talking with uh, foreign affairs uh, correspondent Andrea Mitchell about all of this and uh, the notion that presidents now and in the future are just, if anything, overly cautious about, uh, you know, not ignoring warnings, not uh, uh, ignoring the chatter that they hear, um, you know, about threats against U.S. interests abroad, that that affects uh, our government, President Obama's current thinking on this, and that will affect uh, future presidents thinking on this. And as I was watching it, it wasn't so much the post-9-11 world that Rachel Maddow was talking about uh, that occurred to me. I, I sort of uh, leaned over and I said, Des, I bet they're wildly overreacting. This is not about post-9-11. It's about post-Benghazi. And the concerns that they're, uh, you know, that anything that goes wrong, that the Republicans in Congress are going to jump on them. Oh, they should have known. Oh, they ignored it. Never mind that they, you know, never said that about George W. Bush. He was very busy. He couldn't be bothered with that sort of thing while he was clearing brush down in uh, in Crawford, Texas. But uh, but Barack Obama, he needs to be penalized for missing absolutely everything and that that's what this is about. And frankly, that this is a bunch of ass covering going on right now. It's not about post 9-11. It's about post Benghazi. And I swear to God, 30 seconds later, this is what Andrea Mitchell said while talking to Rachel Maddow. I think, Rachel, that this is not just post 9-11. This is post-Benghazi. That's mm. partly what this is all about. Yeah, partly. Uh, so, she, you know, that is what this is about. And frankly, it is what so much of what the government is now doing is about. It's not about real threats. It's not about something that, uh, you know, we, we really need to be concerned about. It's about covering themselves, covering their own rear ends. And this came up again, a very interesting story uh, this week by my friend Jason Leopold, uh, who now writes for uh, Al Jazeera English. He was formerly at Truthout. Uh, He's been making all of these uh, uh, FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests on all sorts of national security issues while he's been covering, doing brilliant coverage, perhaps uh, the best in the nation, maybe in the world, of uh, the, the prison at Guantanamo Bay. And uh, he's been making these Freedom of Information Act requests. Sometimes he gets a response. Sometimes the uh, response comes back and it's redacted. He recently intervened, which journalists can do. He recently intervened in a case concerning the Guantanamo prisoners down there. And uh, they have had a lawsuit because they have been subject to uh, genital searches before and after they meet with their attorneys. And the judge found this to be abhorrent, uh, you know, violative of their uh, of their religious rights. 
and a federal judge ordered that this be stopped, and the government has said, oh, no, it needs to continue. They're appealing that decision. Well, as part of this case, Leopold intervened uh, with a suit to try and unseal a declaration from uh, the Guantanamo prison warden. Colonel John Bogdan is his name. Uh, he filed a declaration that was sealed in the case. And when the government responded to uh, to Jason's uh, motion here to intervene, they came back and they, uh, they basically said that this declaration offers details, quote, on operational security and force protection procedures that, if released to the public, would better enable our enemies to attack the detention facilities at Guantanamo or undermine security at the facility. In other words, they're saying they're worried that al-Qaeda will be able to attack the prison at Guantanamo somehow and free the prisoners if information from the warden's declaration about genital searches is released. And this is from uh, the government's brief. Quote, protecting these operational security and force protection procedures from the public remains critically important, as evidenced by the recent al-Qaeda attacks on prisons at Abu Ghraib and Taji in Iraq. Now, mind you, Abu Ghraib and Taji are in the middle of Iraq. They're not on a military base, uh, a U.S. military base in Cuba. But these are the concerns. And, of course, they go on to say that those attacks killed 16 Iraqi guards. Yes, Iraqi guards. What are they? What Al-Qaeda is going to get on boats and come ashore? I don't know. But uh, this is the concern. So here is what the bizarre issue is here, however. Uh, as part of the government's response to Leopold's loss uh, intervention in the lawsuit about all of this, they released part of the warden's declaration. But uh, they redacted a whole bunch of it. And as uh, Jason Leopold reports at Al Jazeera, quote, it appears government lawyers were unaware that another version of Bogdan's declaration, one that contained a different set of redactions, was publicly publicly released last month in documents filed with the Federal Appeals Court when the government asked the federal uh, court's decision to be put on hold. Redacted passages that the government says need to remain secret are unredacted in the earlier version filed on the public record as part of the government's appeal. At the same time, some unredacted passages in the declaration submitted on Friday are redacted in the public version of Bogdan's declaration filed with the appeals court last month. The same declaration, the same document, released two different times with two different sets of redactions, some of them completely stupid, which we now know because one uh, version of the document shows what has been uh, redacted in the other. For example, one sentence, the frisk search that is conducted is to ensure that there is nothing concealed between the clothing and the body. In the version of the same document submitted last month, however, to the government, the word frisk is for some reason redacted. Leopold talked with uh, Steve After Stephen Aftergood, director of the Project on Government Secrecy, and he said most, if not all, of these decisions to withhold information are judgment calls, and depending on who does the redacting, you can often get different results. 
He went on to say that this matter is a great illustration of the subjective nature of the redaction process. He said one clever technique used by some Freedom of Information Act requesters is to request the same document from different agencies because the agencies would declassify it differently. And that's a good way to get more information released. The subjectivity of the classification process is important because it has implications for efforts to combat over-classification after good, tells Al Jazeera. If, de- if decisions to declassify information can be independently reviewed by other subjects who have no self-interest in the classification decision, he says, I think that kind of review process can help strip away a lot of unnecessary classification. Yeah. I agree. It is exactly the fruits of that unnecessary classification, over-classification, the massive secrecy state that has developed over the last decade or more, particularly since 9-11, which so many whistleblowers have been trying and trying to tell us about for so many years. These issues bump up against so much of what we have been trying to wrestle with as a nation, what we've been talking about on this show. That secrecy state is at the heart of the leaks of the whistleblowers uh, Bradley Manning, Edward Snowden, the court proceedings and surveillance of journalists by the government, the the necessary or unnecessary closure of the diplomatic posts abroad, the refusal to respond to FOIA requests by the public, the efforts even by local and state governments to keep citizens from overseeing the tabulation of ballots cast in their own public elections. So all of this underscores the subjective nature of the entire process and why independent oversight is so necessary. Whether it's in regard to real congressional oversight of our intelligence agencies, public oversight of Congress and of the secret rulings by the secret FISA court, or simply the ability of investigative journalists to carry out oversight of everything that our government does. Our government of, by, and for the people, by the way, in case you forgot. Look, I don't have the answer to this fine mess that we've gotten ourselves into, but we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it without fear. We need to understand not just the massive surveillance state, but the massive secrecy state And how decisions are being made in our name, decisions that are not meant to protect us, but are meant to protect the decision makers. This needs to be discussed and considered without fear. And that's what we try to do every day at Bradblog.com and every week right here on the Bradcast. Remember, our constitutional system of government is not built on trust. It's built on checks and balances and citizen oversight. And that's what we need to reclaim because that's what seems to be getting harder, not easier. And we, the people, need to figure out some way to unwind this ridiculous and getting ridiculouser un-American mess. All right, get Desi in here. Let's do some green news. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. Take that out of your mouth. What is that? <laughs> it's a cough you drop. You came in here with gum in your mouth? You cough over. drop. Cough drop. Because right. you're not standing out. All right. Well, uh, hi, Des. Hey. Once again, you're here to cheer me up. I know you are. 
with your lively as ever green news reports and all the positive positive information that yes is. there is actually uh speaking of uh fearless media and without uh, uh fear in our favor of, of, that's right of corporations i think we we beat up on a few of the corporations oh uh, easily oh, they yes. deserve it all right well uh, let's do some green news we'll come back with a follow-up or two our latest green news report the reason that we're here is because Chevron is a really bad actor, okay? Okay. 200 arrested protesting Chevron's toxic San Francisco refinery. Drillers wasting one-third of the nation's natural gas. South Korea's growing nuclear industry scandal. Extreme heat naturally poaching Alaska's salmon. Plus... The world's first test tube burger has been unveiled. Yep. A test tube burger. All of those fake delicacies and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Half millimeter thick strips of pinkish yellow lab-grown tissue. Mmm, pinkish yellow strips of lab-grown tissue. But after it was fried. It's close to meat. Mmm, close to meat. This is your Green News Report. The the mouthfeel has... I feel like meat. Okay, Desi Doyen, as we go to air today, we've got some breaking news. One dead, two injured following a coal mining accident in Harlan County, Kentucky. Apparently, uh, one of the miners has now died after a coal pillar burst as a continuous miner machine was operating, causing the miners to be trapped. The condition of the other two injured miners at airtime is currently unknown. Yeah, it's uh, Kentucky's second fatality in their coal mines this year. Coal kills. There's no two ways about it. Indeed. What else do you have for us today? Speaking of the dangers of fossil fuels... Let's try and save planet Earth while we got something to save, huh? Down with Chevron! 200 demonstrators were arrested on Saturday in a massive protest outside a Chevron refinery in the Bay Area town of Richmond, California, one year after a corroded pipe ruptured at the 100-year-old refinery, causing a massive fire that released a cloud of toxic smoke that sent 15,000 area residents to local hospitals for medical treatment. Treatment. And prosecutors announced that Chevron will plead no contest to misdemeanor charges of failing to maintain equipment and for air quality violations. Well, this is going to be costly for them, I'm guessing. Oh, not so much. They're going to pay $2 million in fines and restitution, <laughs> which are equals to about one hour's worth of profits per day for Chevron. Of course, they're a corporation. Unlike people, they don't pay real penalties no matter what they do, no matter how many people they kill. Oil and gas drillers in North Dakota are burning off nearly a third of the natural gas they drill. That's the omissions equivalent of putting one million cars on the road. A new study by nonprofit group Ceres estimates the burned-off gas has a market value of $100 million per month. Drilling companies say they don't want to burn it off, but they're producing natural gas too fast to store it due to lack of pipelines, processing, and storage facilities. Do you believe them? Sure. So they're not burning this material? off to uh, to increase the market price? I don't know if they're doing it for that reason, but they are wasting a lot of money. Yeah, and they're also keeping the market price up. Well, they haven't done a very good job of it because natural gas prices are very low. Yeah, imagine how much lower they would be if they weren't burning off a third of what they're pulling up. But, you know, call me skeptical, cynical, whatever you like. You're skeptical and cynical. Whatever you like. 
In Florida, Duke Energy has canceled plans to build a new nuclear power plant in the central part of the state, citing licensing delays and doubts over whether Duke Energy can recover the $24 billion cost of the new plant amid the natural gas boom. A major scandal unfolding in South Korea's nuclear industry, revelations of pervasive widespread corruption, bribery, and collusion between nuclear regulators, plant owners, and equipment suppliers at all levels of the nuclear industry industry in South Korea. Wait, that's South Korea? That's not here? That's right. Okay. Experts say the industry is, quote, deeply compromised. Wait, that's South Korea? Not here? That's right. South Korea is now trying to figure out how many of its nuclear plants have to be closed due to faked safety tests and inspections. Oh, yeah, that's South Korea. Not here. Extreme heat is killing off thousands of fish in Alaska. A record extended heat wave across Alaska is pushing water temperatures above 80 degrees in some areas, above the tolerance level of salmon and trout, causing huge die-offs. And marine species are on the move due to warming of the oceans. A new international study finds marine species are changing their breeding times and shifting their habitats toward the poles by about five miles per year as the oceans warm. Finally, those who back the idea point towards the rocketing global demand for meat. Yeah, you've probably heard about the world's first test tube burger grown entirely in a lab. It's made from cow stem cells and is said to be biologically identical to beef. Except that it was grown in a lab in a test tube instead of in a cow. Right. Google co-founder Sergey Brin funded the experiment as a potential answer to the environmental impacts and animal cruelty of industrial meat production as world population grows. But there are major issues with large-scale production of this kind of test tube food, and food advocates say it's not really the solution. Check out the debate at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. Call me old-fashioned, but I like my meat grown in a cow, not in a lab. For more on that and all of the other stories we couldn't cover today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download us anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Uh-huh. We had to play that song. We had to. Of course you <laughs> it was, knew it was coming. I know. <laughs> uh, hold the pickles, hold the test tube, uh, something like that. But uh, Yeah, the story anyway. is actually really fascinating. I highly recommend checking it out. You know, like I said, we have the, the links at greennews.bradblog.com. It's gross. It's, gross. it's interesting. It's, it's, how, it's how they make it work. But anyway, coming up tomorrow on tomorrow's Green News Report, the New State of the Climate Report, which is an annual report issued by the American Meteorological Society, along with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They said we have have reached a new normal with extreme weather events. Meaning like, everything's all right. Uh, no, not so much. No. And the American Geophysical Union came out out of nowhere with a new statement saying, in no uncertain terms, humanity is the major influence on the global climate change that has been observed over the last 50 years. I mean, that's that's pretty blunt for them. American Geophysical Union. Yeah, liars, con men. <laughs> it's all a hoax. Yeah, check that out at greennews.bradblog.com. Thank you, Desi. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. To G, our soundboard operator to uh, Dan Frumkin, uh, my guests today. Uh, stay tuned for John Wiener in the 4 o'clock report. He will have new news on the Bradley Manning sentencing phase. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, until we meet again, we're going to be off for uh, a week or so, disappearing into the mountains. But until then, uh, you can find me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog, and of course at bradblog.com. 
I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America. <laughs> <laughs>